Um, last week, we looked at the second of what I think are four instructions that Paul gives in the closing of this epistle. <clears throat> and what we covered, uh, kind of, was wisdom and how wisdom relates to time. It's cool. She's heard all this before, so she can take the baby and, and go out. Um, wouldn't it be funny if I practiced my sermons in front of my wife? <laughs> the directive last week, <clears throat> it was really practical. Um, be present. Make the best use of the time. And I took a giant detour because it's my contention that uh, we have, maybe not necessarily us, but culturally we have a psychological brokenness in regards to time and how we view and how we use it. And I think that it's that brokenness that you see driving the activities that we're engaged in. So what I suggested last week was there are basically, and none of this is revolutionary, there are basically two ways to look at this life, one that's wrong and one that's right, but also can lead to uh, errors. The cultural view, the wrong one, is that nothing matters. The Christian view, the right one, is that everything matters. Now, <clears throat> I think the culture if it could like send a representative in here to argue with me, would argue about my suggestion that it believes nothing matters. But I'm not intimating that uh, our culture has no preferences, values, or interests. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that they believe there will be no final judgment. And if you think that there's no final judgment, you're going to reach wrong conclusions about what, what's meaningful and what matters today as far as what you do. Um, if wisdom, and it does, wisdom begins with the understanding that God exists and we're accountable to him. Th that means that if he doesn't exist, there is no accountability. We're not responsible and it doesn't matter how we act. And I think you see that reflected in society, especially in the United States in 2023. This is because when you remove accountability and responsibility, uh, I mean, manners are quick to, to follow and being removed. And you know this has happened to, to a society when the people are more or less only interested in doing whatever they want. How much more whatever I want can you get than my gender varies from day to day? That's a sign that we've, we've kind of lost touch with things that are concrete. The other thing I would point out is you know that you're dealing with a culture that's only interested in doing whatever it wants because if you watch, the decisions that people make are based on one thing. Is the outcome of this decision going to lead to suffering or pleasure? And as long as it doesn't lead to suffering, then this is the right thing to do. Hence the mantra for the last 50, 60 years in the United States to follow your heart, which is a bad idea in case you're not sure. Um, any society that has to lock the toothpaste behind plexiglass at Walgreens should probably take a look at whether they have an accountability problem. I haven't seen that here. 
and I guess it could all be photoshopped images that I've seen on the internet and in the news, but while we've seen videos, right, of people running out of the store with arm, arm loads of clothing, it kind of doesn't look like they paid for because there's no bag and there's, you know, like the tags are still hanging off. Um, and the reason that we see that happening is because those people know there won't be any consequences. The civil authorities have said there won't be. So say hello to a culture that has decided that nothing matters. And I, I hope I don't sound too much like, like a trumper, because that's not, it's not at all what I'm trying to communicate. I, I'm just trying to identify things by which we can kind of diagnose the problem. If I can't be held accountable, meaning I won't be arrested, I won't be jailed, I won't be tried for robbery, then it doesn't matter whether or not I pay for goods. Um, and this is just one example of this, this idea we hold that as long as I don't suffer, I'll do whatever I want. The outcome ultimately is that time is spent. See if you agree with this. The outcome is that, that time is spent on selfish, sinful, and horrifying things, by and large. Because what difference does it make? Well, the cultural view is erroneous. God sees everything, right? Um, and he knows everything. It was fitting that we read in Hebrews 2 this morning, it doesn't look like everything's in subjection to him yet. Did you catch that? As Garrett was reading, in putting everything in subjection to Jesus Christ, God left nothing outside his control, but at present, we don't see everything in subjection to him yet. This gives people the opportunity to evaluate based on physical eyes and physical senses and decide that ah, there's no God. The reality is, as long as people can convince themselves that there are no eternal consequences for evil behavior, you're going to continue to see evil behavior. Because, you, I mean... Let's say the only accountability were human accountability. Then what you get is a society that conducts itself one way when people are watching and another way when people aren't watching. This was Christendom. This was America in the 1940s and 50s. We'll behave. So, so like the wife-beating epidemic that was evidently the 30s, 40s, and 50s in the United States is indicative of what I'm talking about. The door is shut, the windows are closed. What's going on inside the home doesn't matter because you've got men who go to church on Sunday, profess to know God, but behind the closed door by their deeds, they deny him. That's almost worse. I, I don't, you could flip a coin to decide which is worse. But if people can convince themselves there's no eternal consequences, they're gonna do evil things. The Christian has a different perspective. We believe there will be a judgment and, and that God is holy and hates evil. So in all reality, even people who claim that, that there's no judge, I think they know deep down inside that there is. Look at Romans chapter 2. The baby's having a good time out there. Romans 2, beginning at verse 15, says, They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. 
Everything is going to be uh, judged. Everybody will be held to account. The real difference, <clears throat> I mean, there are, there are quite a few, but this is one real difference between the Christian and the culture is that they are working to suppress the truth and we are seeking to embrace it, right? And, and you can't, I mean, no matter how lost you are, you can sear your conscience, but you can't completely suppress the truth and remove natural consequences from your life. And no matter how Christian you are, you cannot, because we have this remaining corruption and fallen nature, you cannot fully and freely embrace the truth because you've got two wills. This is why Paul says in Romans 7, I see then this reality that evil is present with me, the one who wants to do good. Um, but... We're at least saying we think there's a God who's going to judge everything. Uh, I think it's in Matthew 12. Jesus says on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word that they speak. I mean, every little nitnoid thing that's happened is going to be judged. That's our perspective. That's what we believe. So with that in mind, I mean, we seek to behave in a manner that pleases God, even when nobody's watching us. Right? Right? Okay. And if you don't, and so you're like, I don't want to say right because I don't, then what I would say to you is <clears throat> you understand, you have a, the cognitive function is intact. You get that there's at least a chance what I'm saying is true and that on the day of judgment, Everything will be revealed that has been concealed and, and every action of every sinner will be called to account, right? And so if you realize you behave one way in the shadows and another way in the light and you think maybe you've just got all of us fooled but you're kind of nervous about that coming judgment, here's what I would say to you. When the accuser comes out and, and begins to describe horrific things that James did with his life and you're all thinking, uh, if you've already gone, then you won't be thinking this, but if your name comes after mine in judgment, you'll be thinking, and he was my pastor, right? As that's happening, what, what will happen is Jesus Christ will lay claim to me. He's going to say, that's one of mine. And so all of that sin, not just part of it, but all of it was nailed to the cross with me and he bears it no more. So the accuser can rant and rave and rail and, and sh you know, show everybody how awful I was. But 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to cleanse us and to forgive us. So once I get to judgment, while I do believe it's going to happen, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what you should do if you have a little bit of nervousness about the day of judgment is hide yourself in the person and work of Jesus Christ by faith. Believe the gospel. Embrace him. Because uh, everything matters. Um, but there's, I said there, there are errors which can flow from even the right perspective. And, and from that recognition that everything matters, <clears throat> I think there are two. Um, and what I said last week was if we decide to live as though what we do actually matters and we adopt the corresponding responsibility, but we don't do the first thing we talked about. The first thing we talked about a couple of weeks ago was we have to be people who make it a habit to be in prayer. We need to be in constant fellowship and communication with our creator, right? If you don't do that and then you decide he is a judge and everything matters, 
then one of two and often both errors will begin to appear in your life. You can become fixated on the past and the things which have already happened, or you can become preoccupied with the future and things that have yet to happen. So the Bible says, walk in wisdom, make the most of the time, and we say, got it, will do, and then we proceed to make the most of all the time except for right now. And, and you can see this when, when your life is marked by anxiety and anger because anxiety is about tomorrow. Anger is usually about the past. So if you're mostly anxious and angry and vacillating back and forth between those two, you're not here. You're not present. You're not living in the full free grace of Jesus Christ. You're doing some kind of moralistic deism thing that is breaking you mentally. And the longer you do it, the more mentally broken you get. You've forgotten that the Bible also says in Matthew 6, 34, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough worry for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And I love that the Bible, Jesus, I mean, he's the one that said that, is so uh, just upfront, right? He's not like, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow's going to be awesome. He doesn't say that. He says, don't worry about tomorrow. Like, it'll worry about itself. You just worry about right now. And really, we're not supposed to worry, right? If you're worried, what should you do? Um, yeah, that's a, great, that's a great answer, everybody. You should pray, absolutely. You should pour your heart out to your Father in heaven who knows and loves you. That's so much different than pray. I'm suggesting that you, like, your, your, like my kids used to when they were little, they would climb up into my lap, right? And just talk to me. And half the time, I, because I, I'm not God, didn't understand most of what they were saying. But there's this adorable exchange of affection that takes place when the child goes to the father or the mother and engages with them at their little two, you know, 18-month, two-year-old level. That's what we are to God, in my mind. We, we climb up in his lap and we just share our hearts with him. And you go, hey, I, honestly, I'm terrified because fill in the blank. And God, who lives outside of time, is he, he's like not worried at all about tomorrow. But what the psalmist says is, when my anxious thoughts are multiplied within me, your consolations, O Lord, delight my soul. So he scatters these promises all through the scripture concerning tomorrow. Pour your heart out to God. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Amen? Yeah. Proverbs 14, 29 says, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. <clears throat> so my encouragement to us last week was that we need to make the most of the time by being right where we are as much as possible. Now, I'm surprised that nobody uh, had, the, had the presence of mind to realize that what I've done is I've diverted from the proclamation of the gospel into a bunch of psychobabble. Right? Nobody took me to task over that in the intervening time between last Sunday and now. Because the fact is, if you talk to a good therapist or a good psychologist, they'll tell you this is like a major humanity issue that we don't know how to be present. And I would say the world has, I mean, they're not bad at identifying problems. Uh, 
So a good psychologist can tell you a lot of kind of what's wrong upstairs or in your heart. I would just say they don't have the right solutions because I don't think you can medicate away the propensity to be in the future or in the past instead of being present. I think you can discipline your heart by going to God and seeking him day by day, moment by moment. In fact, I said, what we ought to do is just reduce the scope, right? Instead of, I mean, you got a plan for the future and I get all that and God bless your, your, your uh, caution and in uh, your preparedness, like I have, I can filter, I think I can filter 2.5 million gallons of rancid uh, chemical-filled chemical water at this point. So I'm not saying don't, don't be prepared for the future. I'm just saying live in the present so that you're not preoccupied with what might happen or overly distraught about what already has happened. So you narrow the scope and you go, what if I just sought to glorify God for the next 30 seconds? In, I'm not saying that's just all day. Just, okay, 30 seconds, go. Oh, all right, next 30 seconds. I'm not saying that. I'm saying when your, when your thoughts trickle over to anger or the other direction to anxiety, just reduce the scope a little bit and go, all right, so for 30 seconds, how can I glorify God? While you're at work, while you're at school, when you're fighting with your spouse or, or out on a date with them or what, like whatever you're doing, when you have an anxious or an angry thought, go, hold up, let's narrow the scope. Next 30 seconds, how can I glorify God? And maybe by doing that, we'll be able to string together uh, minutes, and then whole halves of an hour. I don't know. Anything's possible, right? There's forgiveness for sins which we possess the moment that we confess them. Let me say that again. There is forgiveness for sins which it's ours the moment we confess them. And there are promises for the future spilled out all over in Scripture. Let me say that again. There are promises for the future spilled out all over Scripture. So your anger, your anger suggests that you don't need to be forgiving. Your anger suggests that you don't need to be forgiving, which means that you either think God hasn't forgiven you or you are without sin. What's the problem? Did I get a phone call? Oh, well, leave it. There will be a recording. Don't worry about it. Um, your, so that's what your anger suggests. Your anxiety suggests that God isn't going to take care of whatever's coming next, which means you have to handle it yourself. Your anger suggests you don't need to be forgiving. Your anxiety suggests God's not going to take care of you. What happens if you just glorify God for the next 30 seconds? Well, I think maybe at least for a few of those 30 seconds, a little bit of weight comes off your heart. You find freedom in the person and work of Jesus, and then you're suddenly making better use of your time. So here's what I would say to recap the last two weeks. Let prayer be the starting point. We good? Let presence be the next point. 
Now look back at verse 5 in Colossians 4. And we'll soldier on here. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. I told you last week, we'll get to outsiders in a minute. And then it ended up being six days and some hours. Um, Hopefully you've thought a little bit in, in that time about what is meant by outsiders. It's hard to describe without being offensive, right? We're talking about people who have, from a human perspective, refused to believe the gospel. From a human perspective, they've refused to believe in Jesus. From a divine perspective, I would say we're talking about people to whom God has not yet overwhelmingly, sovereignly revealed himself. Right away, you should begin to understand why it's important that we conduct ourselves in wisdom towards those folks. Because at the same time, they are suppressing the truth. They are rejecting the gospel. Yes. And at the same time, we would say, if the Lord wants to save somebody, there's no stopping him. So there's a kind of a a balance here where we go, well, there's human responsibility, but there's also divine will. And to, to... some degree, it is the case that God has not yet overwhelmed their hearts, turned on the light, breathed life into them so that they come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's not up to us. That's up to him. Guess what is up to us? Conduct yourself in wisdom towards that person so that at the very least, you don't keep them from coming to Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.14, let's go there. First Corinthians 2:14. And then next we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 5. So just a couple pages forward from there. First Corinthians 2:14 says, <clears throat> "The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned." What are we apart from Jesus Christ? Dead in our sins and transgressions, right? Okay. So if you're dead in your sins and transgressions, and obviously physically you're still alive, but there's a spiritual sense in which you can be dead, immune to all efforts to interact appropriately with your creator. It can't happen. You don't even want to. You're dead. You're indifferent. 
right? So here comes James at work, and he's like, hey, to whoever, they're lost, they're dead in their sins and transgressions, and he's like, hey, um, let me share some spiritual truth with you. It, it's not, like, it's just not going to translate. You're not going to wisdom somebody into believing the gospel. You're not going to presentation somebody into believing the gospel. The only way somebody's going to believe the gospel is if they come to spiritual life, which means the Holy Spirit has to engage with them, bring them to life, turn on the lights, and then they begin to apprehend the truths of the gospel. Don't get mad when lost people laugh at you for believing something so profound and so good as the gospel. They aren't able to see it that way. They're dead. Why would you take that personally? They hate me because of what I believe. Okay, so what? That's horrible for them. They're dead in their sins and transgressions. Pray for them. 1 Corinthians 5, 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Ah, that's right. Christians don't associate with those kinds of people. Verse 10 says... Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. You cannot, look at me, look right at me. You too, Grace. You cannot avoid associating with people who are dead in their sins and transgressions. It's unavoidable. Unless you're going to leave earth. That's what he said. But now, verse 11, I'm writing you to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Don't even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Peter says it this way. It is now time for judgment to begin with the household of God. It is not wisdom to diagnose people who are dead in their sins and transgressions as sinners. Oh, they're vile. Oh, they're disgusting. Oh, look what they do. Great. That's not wisdom. And you're not conducting yourself wisely toward them by having that attitude. What the Bible is calling you to do is absolutely recognize their conduct for what it is, but deal with them in mercy, in kindness. So we read verses like Philippians 2, 3, and 4, where he, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but for the interests of others. And what the church loves to do is read verses like that and go, That's right. I'm going to look out for my brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Well, it, that verse, those passages are not exclusive to the church. Don't just look out for your own interests, but for those that you go to school with, too. For those that you go to work with, too. For those that live around you in the neighborhood, too. Be interested in them and doing them some good. In Matthew 28, let's go there. Doggone it. Time just flies. In Matthew 28, 18, I really want you to turn here because I doubt anybody's ever shared this verse with you before. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said to his disciples, them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Conduct yourself in wisdom toward outsiders means don't look out only for your own interests, but for the interests of others. And it means, according to Jesus, go out into the world making disciples. Which means... You have to tell people the truth and then beg God that he would own it to the salvation of their eternal souls. Don't just judge them for their gross, immoral conduct. So does a piece of your heart break when you see somebody on the news running out of a store with arms full of stolen merchandise? Because mine does. Because I look at that person and I go, man, they have so suppressed the truth and unrighteousness and they're now storing up wrath for themselves on the day of judgment. If I don't tell them the truth, who's going to? And that's Romans 10, 14, right? How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they going to hear without a preacher? And it's fun, right? To be like, yeah, so get preaching, James. No, you, you have a whole group, a ring of people in your orbit all the time, Monday through Friday, and then maybe a different group on Saturday, you preach the gospel to them. Conduct yourself in wisdom toward outsiders means understand that God has to do a work in order for any person to believe the gospel, right? That's first. Two, don't be overly concerned with judging lost people. We certainly don't want to call evil good and good evil. But don't get so wound up like this, The like, oh, they're not, I don't think you see them much anymore, but back in the day, the Westboro Baptist Church with their signs going to funerals, right? God hates this and God hates that. It's like, and I agree. I mean, technically what, they're, what they've got on their signs in one sense technically is true. But we should be more concerned with how the church behaves. We should look different than the world, right? And in large measure, uh, we just don't. <laughs> we just don't. So that, that would be third. So first was understand that in, in order for 
the gospel to have any impact on somebody that God has to do a work, right? Two was don't be overly concerned with judging lost people. We're not called to that in scripture. Three would be do be interested in judging the church. Do be interested in discerning the difference between good and evil, right and wrong in, inside this family. And then uh, fourth would be do take every opportunity to show kindness to those who don't know or believe in Jesus. Do that. So there are there are homosexual people that I work with, and uh, I love them. I really do. I don't feel the need to have conversations with them about their sexual activity. Like it's it's nowhere near the top of the list of things I think I should be talking to them about. I think if I'm if I'm genuinely from the heart kind to them and engage with them, then God will open the door for opportunities. For, that was a lot of spit. God will open the door for opportunities for me to, to tell them the truth of the gospel. But if all I do is like fold up on myself and because eh, it's gross what they do, how's he going to use me to share the truth with them? Fifth, then is take every opportunity you can find to share the gospel with those outside. So I think you could even boil those five things down to three if you want to make it easier on yourself and go wisdom toward outsiders then involves personal holiness, personal charity towards the lost, and personal evangelism. That's wisdom towards outsiders. Six, verse six, back in Colossians 4. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I don't know. I haven't, I didn't, I still haven't decided whether I should tell you this. This was supposed to be one sermon. Two through six was supposed to be one sermon that I preached three weeks ago. And now we're on to our third and this verse was the one that was giving me the most trouble. And it's still giving me the most trouble. And I'm just going to tell you why. And maybe the Holy Spirit will give us all the answer by the time I'm done here. But I don't have it yet. And this is what I struggled with whether or not to even tell you. Because I could have let you go, go on in blissful ignorance. I'm not going to. The word gracious does not appear anywhere in verse 6. In the original Greek. It's not there. And the word from which the ESV, the NASB, the NIV, the KJV, um, the NLT, all of them, the word from which these translations get gracious is it's just a preposition. In, among, above, before, beside, about. Let your speech be those things. It does say seasoned so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And okay, so here's the best I can do. Here's what I think. Wisdom towards outsiders means, I'm going to say the word, the forbidden word in reformed circles anyway. Okay, Wisdom towards outsiders means you need to have some ability to contextualize your response. 
So when I'm talking to somebody at work and a loved one has just died, and this really happened. In fact, it happened. now it's happened multiple times because it happened again on Friday. <clears throat> that, I, I didn't view it as an opportunity to go, oh, what do you think happens when you die? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I should. But, but I'm just saying, I don't think that's always the right, that's always the thing you should go to. Oh, do you know that you're going to die someday? Get out the lighter. Hold out your hand. Ooh, that's hot. I don't think that's right. So, so what, what I try to do is like engage with them in their sorrow and identify with them in that. Wisdom means letting your speech be Fitting for the moment. That doesn't always mean nice. Ah, you'd hope that it does. We're certainly not trying to be mean, but you need to know how to answer each person. Not all people, each person. So here's what I think. I think if we could get this, I bet the church would start to experience real uh, purification and real like growth. Like we, when we think about the, the kingdom that's promised in the Old Testament, right, to, to David, there's this whole idea that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that planted in the ground grows and grows and grows. And the reason I think that Jesus uh, mentions faith like a mustard seed and, and the, the whole theme of the kingdom of God growing as if from a mustard seed is because it's one of the largest plants that comes from one of the smallest seeds. It's not that it's the biggest plant. But here's what I think the Lord really has in view when we talk about growing the kingdom of God or growing the church. We tend to think, especially in America in, in the last 40 years, we tend to think that means the church is getting bigger. That means the church is getting fuller. That means the church has more people in it. I think it might actually mean that her roots are getting deeper. I think it might actually mean that she's getting pruned and that old branches that are dead are cut off and new branches are grafted in. So speak in a way that addresses things as they actually are, but do it with the goal of redemption, restoration, and love. If we did that, resolved ourselves to doing that, I think the church might get a little deeper. I think the new life that we have might seem a little more vibrant. Speak in a way that addresses things as they are, but with a goal of redemption, restoration, and love. So two verses I want us to look at. We're almost done. Proverbs 12 and then Proverbs 15 will be in both, but we're going to look at 12, 18 and 15, 4. Proverbs 12, 18 says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. I told, uh, I've said this countless times, but I'll say it again. 
I think when a young man comes to understand doctrine and theology, he ought to be locked away for a few years uh, before he's allowed to interact with other people. Because when young men think that they understand the truth, they are quick to turn it into a weapon, a cudgel to beat other people with, right? That's the one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. The tongue of the wise, what does it bring? Proverbs 12, 18, the answer is right in front of you if you'd like to participate. The tongue of the wise, what does it bring? Yeah. Proverbs 15, 4. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but viciousness in it breaks the spirit. I mean, who, who among us doesn't, if you can get honest for a second, who among us doesn't need to repent? Conduct yourself with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the time. And then let your speech be fitting, that it be seasoned so that you can give a good answer to each person. Here's the internet postable line for this Sunday. You are no more discerning than you are gentle, period. Uh, all young folks struggle with this, and I think a measure of maturity is when you get a hold of this reality. We think we're smart when we see what's wrong with other people. Um, we think we're discerning when we suss out what's really going on with somebody else. You are no more discerning than you are gentle. However, <clears throat> gracious speech is also truthful, right? So don't lie. We don't want to soften our words to the point of dishonesty. Oh, we need wisdom, don't we? Uh, conduct yourself with wisdom towards outsiders. It would be better to be silent than lie. Again, comprehend what's really happening. Do that, step one. Comprehend what's really happening. Describe it, and then you can seek to change it. But you are no more discerning than you are gentle. So here's what we've got from uh, Colossians 4. Prayer, wisdom, use of time, use of the mouth. Uh, fascinatingly, if you go back to the beginning of Colossians, we started out with prayer, and then we moved into uh, wisdom, and then into use of the time, and then we kind of ended with the use of the mouth. And then you get this little review in the end in chapter 4 of everywhere that we've been for the last six months. Let's pray.